Namo tassa bhagavato rato sanna sambandhasa Namo tassa bhagavato rato sanna sambandhasa Namo tassa bhagavato rato sanna sambandhasa Buddhaṃ saranaṃ gacchāmi Dhammaṃ saranaṃ gacchāmi Sangaṃ saranaṃ gacchāmi You like, you can continue to sit while you listen to the sutta that we'll be covering today, which is the Sona Sutta from the Anguttara Nikaya, the numerical discourses. It's from the Book of the Sixes, Sutta number 55. Sona Sutta with the venerable sauna. A little bit of uh, a background information on venerable sauna. I'm sure you've come across uh, some aspects within your studies of the Dhamma where elements of uh, the venerable sauna or some particular things about his life um, you might have come across, uh, which include the image of the Veena or Sitar, where in Buddhist lore we have Lord Buddha describing to a student how not to tighten the string too much, nor to leave it too slack, which are the two extremes, which would mean that it won't play. Well, it's Venerable Sona that these words were directed to. And uh, Venerable Sona was, uh, first of all, he was very pampered. He was very um, delicately raised as a child, even as a, as a young man. They say that uh, his skin was as soft as uh, hibiscus flower. And um, he had been taken care of by his parents, <clears throat> they treated him like royalty to the point where he would be lifted and carried from room to room because they didn't want him to get too tired by walking. Uh, I mean, they had gone through to, to some extremes, right? To the point where they say that fine hairs grew beneath his feet. And um, it was almost like cotton or like lint. And, uh, but he wasn't pompous, he wasn't arrogant. Um, and so the news spread around in the kingdom of King Bimbisara that there is such a person. 
to the point where the king was intrigued. So he took his own retinue of advisors and he went to the palace where um, Sona, the layperson, lived. And they literally wanted to see the bottom of his feet. And they did look and they discovered that lo and behold, <laughs> that is the case. <laughs> But the king was so moved by his behavior, how he was so humble and kind, and uh, how generous his parents were, that he immediately uh, asked if Sona could be one of his, uh, a member of his retinue, and specifically one of his attendants, his key attendant, uh, some texts have said. And of course, that's a great honor. And uh, Sona had become the king's attendant. Now, it was during that time that Lord Buddha, this was in the beginning part of uh, Buddha's, Lord Buddha's dispensation. So this was the earlier years where he would spend a lot of his time uh, on um, an area in, in Rajagha, in the kingdom of Rajagha, that is called uh, Vulture's Peak. Vulture's Peak. Um, and if you ever would get a chance to go there, it looks like the head of a vulture, um, the cliffs. And also there, uh, they say, some commentaries say that that's where vultures used to hang out a lot. Because you see the whole valley underneath. And uh, so that was the monastery for some time. So Lord Buddha would spend quite a bit of time there. So... King Bimbisada had heard another uh, account of uh, uh, a disciple of Lord Buddha's at the time. This time, Lord Buddha's own attendant. It wasn't Venerable Ananda. It was a young uh, bhikkhu by the name of Sagata. Now, the unusual part about this bhikkhu was that he had practiced the uh, fire casino heat so he was uh, very developed in his psychic abilities to the point where um, the news had spread in the kingdom of king Bimbisara. so again he wanted he was a very curious royal apparently so he ended up going all the way up to vulture's peak and uh, and uh, they go to see what is the deal with this. this is, is it such a, is it real? And um, Sagata, um, Lord Buddha's attendant, uh, is there and uh, Lord Buddha is giving a discourse. But the attention is on Sagata. So he had this, you know, everybody's there to watch him look at him do something supernatural to the point where lord buddha says okay okay sagata do something for these people and sagata starts he just uh, steps off the cliff and he starts walking up into the sky as if he's walking up a stairway and he kept on walking back and forth doing some um uh, basically some light shows and things like that with his abilities now 
immediately because of their fickle minds, even the king who had respect for Lord Buddha, now he was gravitating towards Sagata, thinking that, wow, he is uh, with power, so he must be the real deal. And uh, Sagata realizes what's going on, and he comes down, and he goes straight to Lord Buddha, and he bows at Lord Buddha's feet to transition the attention, to bring the attention back to where it's supposed to be, the respect and the honor and the homage to be paid to Lord Buddha, not to himself, to Sagata. Now, who is in the retinue of King Bimbisara? Sona. Sona, who is now King Bimbisara's attendant. As Lord Buddha is giving the discourse, Sona's saddha, his faith, blossoms, grows. To such an extent, he says, I, I, I don't think I can make it as, as, a, as a layperson to practice in full this Dhamma in order for me to reach those stages, those lofty stages that Lord Buddha is talking about. And he decides to wait until everyone's left. And, uh, and they leave and he goes... Uh, to Lord Buddha and says, Bhante, I would like to uh, go forth. And uh, without, you know, long story short, he goes and gets his parents' permission and they grant it and he goes and becomes a bhikkhu. And uh, he doesn't meditate too far away from the Gija peak, which is Gija is, is in Pali for the vulture's peak, which is in Rajaka, but he does so in the, an area called uh, Cool Forest. Um, I think it's called Sitavana in Pali. And uh, so that is where this sutta is taking place. Um, so uh, let us, let us uh, begin the sutta. Again, this is from the numerical discourses. Sutta number uh, 6.55. 6 always designates the book from which it comes. So the uh, book of the six is Sutta number 55. Sona Sutta. Here we go. I have personally heard this. At one time, the Blessed One was living on the vulture's peak in Rajaga while the Venerable Sona was also staying in Rajaga, but in the cool forest, below from where the Blessed One was. Then the Venerable Sona began thinking and planning in his seclusion. I am one of the disciples of the Blessed One, living with aroused energy. But I see how my mind is not yet released from the mental contaminants, the asavas as it still tends to grab onto things. Now, in our family, there is still much wealth. I could go just back to them and retake my share of that wealth. Meanwhile, I can always do merits and wholesome acts. What if I give up the holy life and just go back to the lower life of a householder, reclaim my wealth as I continue doing merit-making deeds? 
this is a line of thinking that happens to many people who go forth. Um, not just in the case of uh, becoming a recluse or an ascetic or a bhikkhu in this case, but anything that requires our fullest attention. The drive might, sometimes we go into it with so much strength and fervency and energy and effort, as the case was with, with the Venerable Sona. But it's not just effort. It's a combination of several different factors. Patience needs to be there. Wisdom needs to be there. Being able to pull back sometimes from putting too much effort. Again, um, sometimes we think that that's all we need. In fact, that is the last thing you need at a certain interval in your practice because too much energy can burn you out. And that is what's happening here with Venerable Sona. That and also the, the added factor that many people wanted to come and see him. They still wanted to see, like, you know, to peek, to get a peek of, of the bottom of his feet. People were curious. It's interesting when you hear about someone who was that wealthy. He was just like Lord uh, Buddha when he was Siddhartha. He also lived in, you know, he, his parents had given him three different palaces. So you hear all about these people and then you find out that they're in the forest not too far from where you live. So some people would make offerings and just go there just with the intention of wanting to speak with them. So that was also creating a lot of distraction. So he was caught between like, should I leave? Because this is not working for me. Because I'm putting a lot of effort and nothing's happening. Which I'm sure many of us can uh, share that sentiment at times. Meanwhile, the Blessed One, knowing in his mind the discursive thoughts being pondered in the Venerable Sona's mind, quickly, and just as a strong man would stretch out his flexed arm or bend back his outstretched arm, suddenly disappeared from the vulture's beak and reappeared before Venerable Sona in the cool forest. Then the Blessed One sat on the prepared seat as the Venerable Sona paid his respect to him and sat to one side. The Blessed One said, Sona, were you just now pondering this discursive thought while in seclusion? I am one of the disciples of the Blessed One, living with aroused energy but I see how my mind is not yet released from the mental contaminants, as it still tends to grab on to things. Now, in our family, there is still much wealth. I could go just back to them and retake my share of that wealth. Meanwhile, I can always do merits and wholesome acts. What if I give up the holy life and just go back to the lower life of a householder, reclaim my wealth as I continue doing merit-making deeds? Uh, many bhikkhus, uh, many Westerners, in fact, after going whether to Thailand, uh, Sri Lanka, or Burma, and uh, who have their heart in the right place, as it were, um, um, give up the life of, 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 of a recluse. Uh, many times it is simply because uh, the romantic ideas that we have 
surrounding the whole spiritual path, um, the expectations. Uh, when we land, it's a different story, not just the culture, but the culture within a monastic uh, setting, the hierarchical structures or the language differences, um, the tribal elements, etc. So many things that pull the rug from under what we thought the Dhamma should have provided for us, should have provided for us. That, in addition to the, the hopefulness that, or the eagerness, rather, for us to have attained by a certain point in the future. Well, at least, you know, I, I should become a Sotapanna or Anagami. I mean, come on. There were people who would think that uh, if you've spent, let's say, 10 years in a Thai forest tradition, then you, you'd better become a Sotapanna. So people would have these, these uh, um, unspoken rules, uh, or, or it's a given, in a sense. And when things didn't happen the way they planned, many people would just drop off and out. And uh, some people will become very disheartened. And many people uh, would want to just leave the robes disrobe, but without walking away from living a wholesome life, just like in the case of Venerable Sona, who's pondering this possibility. Hey, I could still do good deeds, and I could still practice. Lord Buddha has given me a tool, meditation tool, so I can do that. So on the surface, it looks fine, and Mara loves this. Mara loves this. Because essentially the person is giving up, taking a back seat when it comes to their own salvation, breaking through ignorance from samsara. And that's why Lord Buddha showed up. And we have so many different examples of this. And these are incidents, these, these events rather, where Lord Buddha personally goes to the student, uh, places uh, a special emphasis upon the connection with that particular student, as the case is with Venerable Sona. So you have a group of students here and there uh, throughout the Nikayas where Lord Buddha personally went and uh, to have uh, the student become encouraged uh, and overcome that change of heart or, or um, the hesitation uh, in, in living the holy life. So they are placed in a special category. Of course, uh, many of them come to mind, but uh, one of them is this. And, and for me, it's Venerable Mahamu Gallana, as we have seen in uh, Pachalaya Manasutta uh, last year. So Lord Buddha just asked him, were you thinking about this? And uh, Sona says, yes, Bhante. Sona... When you were still a householder, were you skilled at the veena, playing music? Yes, Bhante. Veena is like a sitar, but it's not exactly like a sitar. It has these two clay pots, basically, one uh, underneath the belly of the instrument and one near the neck of the instrument. 
and it's a it has a very unique tone or voice to it sound to it it's much uh, softer i've discovered in in hearing the sound of it than let's say uh, a sitar would so apparently he uh, had uh, been known to play uh, to be excellent at playing this the veena prior to him joining uh, the order by the way as as bhikkhus we are absolutely forbidden from playing music singing dancing etc so uh, just fyi uh, other traditions they uh, it's a different story uh, but as theravada bhikkhus absolutely not Sona, if you were to tighten the strings on the vena, could you still play it to make music? Oh no, Bhante. And what if, Sona, the strings of the vena were too loose? Could it still be in tune so that you can play it to make music? It could not, Bhante. And what if, Sona, the strings on the vena were not too tightened nor too loose? And having been properly tuned, would the veena now be played to make music? Oh yes, Pante. In just the same manner, Sona, too much aroused energy and effort lead to restlessness and agitation, whereas too little aroused energy and effort lead to laziness and absent-mindedness. Therefore, Sona, make a determination to balance your energy and effort while establishing an evenness in your faculties, so to be able to penetrate your meditation object and gain its sign. In this case, it's um, that level, uh, a level, a level-headedness, or or when you're settled in your meditation. Uh, often, it's, it's uh, the term that is used is nimitta for the sign, but the person has to penetrate that. Having been thus advised and encouraged by the Blessed One, the Venerable uh, Sona was delighted in receiving this personal advice from the Blessed One himself. And just as a strong man would stretch out his flexed arm or bend back his outstretched arm, suddenly the Blessed One disappeared from the cool forest and reappeared immediately on the vulture's peak. Then, as instructed by the Blessed One, Venerable Sona made a determination to balance his energy and effort. And by establishing an evenness in his faculties, he was able to penetrate his meditation object and gained its sign. That means his samadhi was settled. Being secluded and withdrawn from the crowd, living heedfully and with resolution. Withdrawn from the crowd, that means he had literally pushed them away or moved himself further into the cool forest to be away from uh, from people uh, living heedfully and with resolution venerable sona kept practicing diligently and before long here and now he was able to finally realize by himself the noble end of the holy life experiencing for himself that unsurpassed knowledge for which sons of good families rightfully leave the household life by becoming homeless. And the Venerable Sona knew with certainty unparalleled. Now, birth is finally destroyed. The holy life is fully lived. What should be done is now done, and there is no more coming to any state of becoming. And Venerable Sona became one of the Arahants.
Then it occurred to the Venerable Sona, what if I go to the Blessed One and declare my attainment? And the Venerable Sona approached the Blessed One, and after paying homage to him, sat to one side and said, Bhante, an arahant, with his mental contaminants all destroyed, who has lived the holy life, done what should be done, having put down the heavy burden by achieving the highest goal, and having destroyed the fetter of further becoming, and who is now fully released by his full awakening, finds himself naturally inclined towards these six states. Today we live at a time period where everybody wants to have a name tag or a business card that says, I have achieved this. I mentioned uh, whimsically at one point or another how um, on retreats in the past as a layman, I would see people expressing vehemently the need for them to not be held back from expressing, let's say, whether they're able to attain to the fourth jhana or even if they had attained, uh, presuming they had, uh, any of the loftier states, whether uh, a stream enterer, once returner, non returner, etc., to be able to declare those. And I've seen people witnessed how they wanted to, uh, well, to hold that right, to keep that right, quote unquote. Lord Buddha makes fun of these people. There's another sutta in the book of the sixes. Uh, Kema Sutta, uh, where you have two Arahants, Kema and Sumana, uh, both become Arahants. And as you see here with Venerable Sona, they too say, hmm, let's go and, and, and uh, pay homage to Lord Buddha and in a way uh, declare their Arahantship. Because you do not go and, and ask for confirmation. From what I've seen happen in the suttas with arahants, none of them has like doubts. Mm, could that be an arahantship? No. They know because on that level, they are equal to Lord Buddha's because there's one Nibbana in that sense as an arahant. Because let's not forget, Lord Buddha is also an arahant. So is Venerable Sona. So is Venerable Kema. So is Venerable Sumana. So they go there to Lord Buddha's uh, presence and they pay homage and they bow down and they say, I think it's Venerable Kema first says, and just like Venerable Sona just said, uh, an arahant who has attained these, these levels, etc., and has bro broken free from the asavas, uh, in the case of Venerable uh, Kema, he says something like, along the lines of, the thought doesn't occur to the arahant, he says, that uh, I am superior to someone, or someone is inferior to me, or I am equal to someone. In essence, there is no conceit in the mind of the Arahant. And uh, he waits, pauses for Lord Buddha's approval, and Lord Buddha smiles and approves in his silence. And the Venerable Kema uh, bows down and then circumambulates around Lord Buddha, and then he leaves. His buddy, Venerable Sumana, who's also an Arahant, they came together 
He turns to Lord Buddha and says the same thing about uh, Narahant who has attained these, these, these states. The thought doesn't occur to him. No one is superior to me. No one is inferior to me. No one is equal to me. So he puts the uh, negative uh, qualifier in the beginning. And uh, in essence, he's saying the same thing. And he also waits and Lord Buddha gives his approval. And again, he pays homage and he leaves. And Lord Buddha turns to the other bhikkhus and he says, this is how a, 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 a good disciple declares his arahantship. And then he, he, in a sense, mocks those other people, he says, who go around flaunting titles. Oh, I'm an arahant, this and that. Soon enough, he says, their deception is revealed. They're just frauds, he says. So here we see Venerable Sona also coming over. He's not saying, Bhante, I did it. I did it, Bhante. No. There's, there's no such thing. Here we see him saying how the mind of uh, such a person who's purified himself leans, inclines naturally towards these six states. So he starts listing them. Because it's the book of the sixes, everything is pretty much listed as sixes. When we go to the book of sevens or fours, you have four qualities, etc. So this one is the book of six, so we'll get six states. He is constantly inclined towards renunciation, to seclusion, to being kind and with non-oppressive consideration, to the destruction of craving, to the destruction of any form of grabbing, and to mental purity. Excuse me. Last week I was talking about Panchupadana Kanda, the five grabbing aggregates. That is what we can term in, in, the, in the West, for example, in the ego. This is me, this is mine, this is my thought, these are my thoughts. This is my well-being or its absence. So grabbing there's no grabbing for an arahant otherwise you you know um, he could never become an arahant if there was any grabbing uh, that's where the khandas are right the aggregates bante there might be some bhikkhus who may look upon the renunciation they witness in such a bhikkhu and assume it to be merely an expression of faith or devotion and nothing more but that would be incorrect as it would be a false assumption on their part. So basically, it's, it's like a conditional thing. So, oh, they're just being pious. That's why they're renouncing. Bhante, he says, the bhikkhu with his mental contaminants, asavas, all destroyed, is an arahant who has lived the holy life, done what should be done, having put down the heavy burden. And he repeats that formula. Um... And as such, there is nothing further left for him to do or work on in order to improve himself. There's, there's no need for him to prove himself to anybody. Um, therefore, he is now naturally inclined towards renunciation, simply because he is truly void of any lust, having completely destroyed it. Also, he is truly void of any hatred, having completely destroyed it. And he is truly void of any delusion, having completely destroyed it. 
For this reason, Bhante, the bhikkhu naturally inclines now towards renunciation. Remember, um, no one can uh, advance on the path uh, all the way uh, and graduate by becoming an arahant without first having experienced disenchantment and dispassion. Those two criteria are absolutely necessary for nibbida, for, for that renunciation that Venabhusona is talking about. Because you have individuals out there wanting to still keep holding on to this and that from their lives, while also carrying themselves as a spiritual teacher or a master. That's the quickest way to know that you're dealing with a fraud, basically, whether a Buddhist or not. If the person is wanting to have some things from this life, you know, lay life and, and all the luxuries, this and that, and money could bring and accolades, titles, this and that. The whole path is based on renunciation. Yes, for a layperson, it doesn't necessarily have to be pabbaja or going forth, becoming homeless necessarily. But the renunciation, uh, the internal aspect of it needs to be there. The person is no longer connected to it, nor is, is he or she craving those things. They will shun it. They don't want any titles because they don't take themselves seriously anymore. Further, Bhante, there might be some bhikkhus who may look upon the seclusion they witness in such a bhikkhu and assume it to be merely a way for him to gain renown, fame, or praise by others. But that would be incorrect, as it would be a false assumption on their part. So sometimes you see these individuals, um, they want to come across as pious, as, oh, I'm, you know, um, to have a gathering, I'm, a, I'm, a spirit, uh, I'm more spiritually inclined, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But as we uh, have covered with Viman Sakasutta in the past, um, which is the, the, the book from the Majjhimanikai, Middle Lake Discourses, where Lord Buddha talks about examining the teacher. And he says, don't be fooled by appearances. Give it some time. Spend some time with that teacher closely associated with them, see them in different lights, as it were. And soon enough, if they have those qualities, they will show up. But simply don't presume that they don't have these tendencies of seeking renown and fame, because Lord Buddha says, simply because they never had the chance to enjoy such things. They never were given renown or fame. What would happen if they get a smidgen of that? And, and you, you see that all around. Um, I might have mentioned about some bhikkhus I've known who were very kind and humble over the course of time that I've known them decades ago. Suddenly, the teacher dies and they get the position of an abbot or general secretary or treasurer. Suddenly, something happens about them. There's, suddenly, there's a different air about them. Um, so we, we need to be cognizant of these factors and always look uh, 
uh, with uh, examining eyes. And that's what the Vimansika was saying. So uh, here, Venerable Sona is using more of a practical approach. Bhante, the bhikkhu with his mental contaminants all destroyed, is another hunt. He's repeating that formula. Uh, so there's nothing further left for him to do or work on in order to improve himself. Therefore, he is now naturally inclined towards seclusion, simply because he is truly void of any lust, having completely destroyed it. So he, again, he lists the three defilements, uh, lust or greed. Here, it's more raga uh, that is used uh, versus lobha. Uh, also, he is truly void of any hatred, having completely destroyed it. And he is truly void of any delusion, having completely destroyed it. For this reason, Bhante, he naturally inclines now towards seclusion. Further, Bhante, there might be some bhikkhus who may look upon the kind and non-oppressive consideration they witness in such a bhikkhu and assume that he has merely become hemmed in by the belief that continuous observance of the precepts is of the utmost importance while having wrong views about true virtuous behavior. So basically, uh, they think that they're just going through the motions, as it were. And uh, if that is the case, then the person can uh, absolutely not be an arahant, for sure, because they're not even a sotapanna yet. Why? A stream enterer. Uh, because in order for the person to become a stream enterer or stream winner, they needed to have already cut themselves loose from silabbata paramasa, which is the belief that rites and rituals will get them to see the supramundane paths and fruits, meaning becoming at the very least a stream winner, either path or uh, fruit. Um, so they cannot, they cannot live together, those two. If the person is a sotapanna, already that whole idea that rites and rituals could get, like if you say mantras, or if you bow down, prostrate this many times, or if you go to pilgrimage, and that will lead you to awakening, all these beliefs, they all crumble and just are destroyed in the mind of the person, in the heart of the person which is one of the hallmarks, one of the signatures of the person becoming a Sotapanna. So, but that would be incorrect, he says, uh, for, the, for them to think that he's just doing this and he's being virtuous because he's just doing ob observance of the precepts because he has to. Uh, I've met bhikkhus over the years who just kept on saying to everyone that they keep 227 precepts. but you live with them, you spend the day with them, and you see that they don't even practice the five precepts. Let alone the 227. So, um, you know, it is not merely observance of precepts, simply for the sake of, look at me, I'm observing precepts. It has to be imbibed, it has to become the person's character. That's why it's called virtuous behavior, whether someone's there or not. Because Lord Buddha talked about the three aspects of action. If you remember from the Upali Sutta, where Lord Buddha was very critical of the Jains, 
who did not put any value on the mental actions. And it's all about mental action when it comes to the Dhamma, the intentionality of our actions, of our words, of our thoughts. So even when we're alone, completely alone at night, in bed, by yourself, check your thoughts. Are you breaking any sila? Even with thoughts. So such a person is beyond that. That's what Menavasuna is saying. And then he repeats the same formula. Having put down the heavy burden by achieving the highest goal. Uh, so um, because he is truly void of any lust, any hatred, any delusion, because he has completely destroyed them. For this reason, Bhante, he naturally inclines now towards being kind and with non-oppressive consideration. So he's not trying to prove a point. He's not trying to show off. He's not trying to tell anyone anything. He's just doing this because that's how the stream flows. He's not showing anything that is not naturally manifesting as an extension of his life, of his behavior. Further, Bhante, there might be some bhikkhus who may look upon the destruction of craving they witness in such a bhikkhu and assume that he, is, he has merely become hemmed in by the belief that continuous observance of the precepts is of the utmost importance, while having wrong views about true virtuous behavior. Then, uh, but that would be incorrect, as it would again be a false assumption on their part. Um, and then he continues on. Further, Bhante, there might be some bhikkhus who may look upon the destruction of any form of grabbing they witness in such a bhikkhu, uh, destruction or absence, in such a bhikkhu, and assume that he has merely become hemmed in by the belief that continuous observance of the precepts is of the utmost importance, while having wrong views about true virtuous behavior. Again, we see three paragraphs, one after the other, where sila is being addressed here. Because that is the most obvious thing that people could see, whether there is sila or the absence of it. And even that, he is allowing us to, um, to approach our understanding of sila with a little bit more uh, critical uh, perspective, or to look at different nuances of what sila could mean, or how it should be looked at for such a person. And um, is of the endless, while having wrong views about true virtuous behavior, because ultimately it is the wrong view of the perceiver, the person who's looking in, trying to look at the arahant. And many will not recognize it as such a person. Um, such an arahant. Sometimes I wondered um, if there were, uh, if there was a time machine, and we went back two thousand six hundred years to, let's say, in this sutta's case, to uh, Vulture's Peak. We landed there, and we're looking around, and we walk down and we try to check out Venerable Ananda's cave or Venerable Sariputta's cave, would we even recognize them 
because we have these images, right? Like earlier, I was talking about romanticizing this whole path and, and spirituality. I used to entertain such ideas, like, what if I go back, let's say by some miracle, I end up going back and I meet Venerable Asaji or Venerable Bahia before he dies. Would I know that they're arhats? Or how about Lord Buddha? Would I be able to see or recognize them? There's a, there's a reference that uh, Ajahn Man makes in, um, who was an arahant and who had uh, superlative psychic abilities, especially when it came to uh, communicating with devas and, and, and uh, that sort of thing. And one day he says, so he would be given glimpses in a sense of time periods past, he would see arahants from different time periods as well as from his own time period. Um, and uh, one in one of, in his uh, biography, there's a section where he says he was presented the scene where uh, it was all in an area, in, in an opening, in a, in a clearing, in a forest where bhikkhus were there and they had different color robes remember most of them were just getting whatever robes they could find in the charnel ground and their heads were shaven and he realizes because his heart realizes this is the mahasanga i'm there he's watching and he's looking around to see where lord buddha is and he cannot find him because we have an image, right? We, we presume that Lord Buddha is to be always sitting on a, on a higher elevated position. But apparently they all came and, uh, and whoever, it's like a first come first serve type of a thing. Uh, so nobody was gonna get a, 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 the, the front row seat as it were. And he understands the situation and he's surrounded by arahants. And they all look alike. And no, Lord Buddha did not have this, you know, braided or, or like a dread, dreadlock, like a hair over his head, like turn into this, you know, bundle or, you know, bun over his head. That is simply something that people have made up over centuries, simply to help us identify, oh, this is the great teacher compared to the others who are bald. Lord Buddha was also cleanly shaven. So I don't know. Would we be able to identify Lord Buddha? If we're looking with wrong view, I have suspicion that we, we would be unable to. But if we're looking with right view, ah, that's a different story altogether. Because the truth never lies. And if we hold samadhi in our hearts, we will recognize samadhi outside of us. And uh, when we are speaking about an arahant, they're all, they, they are the living embodiment of samadhi. So, continuing on. Um, Therefore, he is now naturally inclined towards the destruction of any form of grabbing, simply because he is truly void of any lust, having completely destroyed it. 
Also, he is truly void of any hatred, having completely destroyed it. And he is truly void of any delusion, having completely destroyed it. For this reason, Bhante, he naturally inclines now towards the destruction of any form of grabbing. Further, Bhante, there might be some bhikkhus who may look upon the dedication to mental purity they witness in such a bhikkhu and assume that he has merely become hemmed in by the belief that continuous observance of the precepts is of the utmost importance. While having wrong views about true virtuous behavior. But that would be incorrect, as it would again be a false assumption on their part. Bhante, the bhikkhu with his mental contaminants all destroyed is an arahant who has lived the holy life, done what should be done, having put down the heavy burden by achieving the highest goal. And as such, there is nothing further left for him to do or work on in order to improve himself. When Venerable Kondanya, who had secluded himself, and he was the chief, he was the first one among Lord Buddha's disciples who attained the, uh, the Dhamma eye and later the first to attain Arahant. Even though many people say the five uh, disciples altogether became Arahants, but some commentators say it, but he was the first. But afterwards, he chose to live by himself in the forest, deep in the forest. And only a few times he came out of it. One time before his, his death, he came out and his, he, his, his robes looked different because he was using different types of fruits to dye his robes. He was an arahant. He was the first. But they couldn't recognize that he's an arahant. This is happening at the time of the Buddha. And the first you know, disciple is there walking back to the monastery to pay his final respect to Lord Buddha before he dies. And many people kind of scoffed at him, like, look at his behavior. Look at his robes. He's not even got his robe right. What is the deal with his hair? With, he has a beard. Does he have a beard? Or what is this? They were very critical of him. So the reason why I'm mentioning this is because what we are also seeing with Venerable Sona here, because you can tell that there's a background, a backstory here where he was surrounded also by bhikkhus who were so lost in simply the rites and ritual aspect of merely keeping uh, the observing of the precepts. They had seen that as the completion of living the holy life, paying lip service, or really doing those precepts, but simply not to break them religiously holding on to and missing the whole, well, missing the boat as to why the precepts are there. They are there to reduce suffering for the person and for the Sangha, to keep the Sangha coherent and to make sure that the dispensation of Lord Buddha carries on. It doesn't die out. Otherwise, we're just, you know, blindly following something and it, 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 is, it has turned then into rites and ritual thing. And so he says uh, about the 
three kilesias. And then for this reason, Bhante, he naturally inclines now towards mental purity. Naturally, he's not forcing it. Bhante, when the bhikkhu's heart is perfectly released in this way, even if a great many compelling visual forms come to be witnessed by the eye, they do not take hold of his heart, nor even stay. The dust doesn't settle. There's no table for it to land on anymore. So if the eye, the internal base, sees a form, it doesn't stay. It is just the seeing. That's it. The mind remains completely unperturbed, steady, and unmoved by what is seen as he observes the continued cessation of whatever appears before him. So just like the breath, like we've discussed in Anapanasati, you're watching the whole body of the breath, right? In beginning, middle, and end. So the Arahant is seeing the seeing, if you will. He's just seeing it. And he's saying, oh, that's the beginning. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Oop, there's a new thing. There's something else that was caught, captured by the eye. Because that's what the eye is supposed to do. If there are forms and you have a healthy eye and there's light, the conditions are there, you're going to see things. Similarly with the sound and the ears. We're going to hear things. Which is next, by the way. Um, similarly, even if a great many compelling audible sounds come to be experienced by the ear, they do not take hold of his heart, nor even stay. The mind remains completely unperturbed, steady, and unmoved by what is heard, as he observes the continued cessation of whatever is heard by him. Whatever arises will always cease. Remember last week I was saying, Samudayo, Samudayo, Nirodho, Nirodho. Arising, arising, ceasing, ceasing, ending, ending. If we can just remember that, we accomplish a lot. Then the state of nobility is right there at the corner. Attaining is, 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 is bound to happen. But whether it's the breath, whether it's the sight, whether it's it's the sounds we're hearing, just noticing it's arising and it's ceasing. And if we're really attentive, if we can capture that moment of arising, guess what? We're also capturing the moment of its ceasing, its ending, because they come together. It's not like it happens later, half an hour later. It is happening immediately, but the observing mind can only know this. You can only know this. If your yoniso manasikara is there, if your wise attention, if your wise radical attention is there to see it eagerly waiting, like a child then, you know, Christmas morning, waiting, waiting, waiting. Similarly, even if a great many compelling odors come to be experienced by the nose, they do not take hold of his heart nor even stay. The mind remains completely unperturbed, steady, and unmoved by what is smelled, as he observes the continued cessation of whatever is sensed by him. Similarly, even if a great many compelling flavors come to be experienced by the tongue, they do not take hold of his heart nor even stay. The mind remains completely unperturbed, 
steady and unmoved by what is tasted, as he observes the continued cessation of whatever is sensed by him. Similarly, even if a great many compelling textures come to be experienced by the body, they do not take hold of his heart nor even stay. The mind remains completely unperturbed, steady, and unmoved by what is touched, as he observes the continued cessation of whatever is sensed by him. And similarly, even if a great many compelling thoughts or memories come to be experienced by the mind, they do not take hold of his heart nor even stay. The mind remains completely unperturbed, steady, and unmoved by what is cognized, as he observes the continued cessation of whatever is known by him. This is the hardest part. This is the most important part also. That is, seeing the thoughts as they arise. If we are able to do this, then we're almost there. But that's, that's the challenge that Venable Sona is presenting us with here. The mind is the toughest. The mind is the sneakiest. The eye we can. The ears we can. The sounds we can. It's a, more relatable. But the, the thoughts, the memories, those are much more slippery. So if we train those muscles of yonisomonisikara, it becomes a lot easier to look at the other five sense organs, internal bases and external bases, and see the connection. Uh, samudayo and nirodo, they are rising and they're ceasing. Bante, just like a massive stone mountain that is solid without any crevasses or rifts in it, and when a powerful thunderstorm comes from the eastern or the western or the northern or the southern directions, and try as it might to violently pour all its rain on it, it cannot even move or make the mountain tremble. Likewise, Bante, when the bhikkhu's heart is perfectly released in this way, even if a great many compelling visual forms, so he repeats the whole um, formula of all the six um, um, bases, uh, sense spheres, if you will, witnessed by the eyes, and sounds witnessed by the ears, odors witnessed by the nose, flavors witnessed and experienced by the tongue, textures and uh, uh, experienced by the body. Uh, the mind, the person becomes unmoved by what is touched as he observes the continued cessation of whatever is sensed by him. And similarly, even if a great many compelling thoughts or memories come to be experienced by the mind, they do not take hold of his heart nor even stay. The mind remains completely unperturbed, steady and unmoved by what is cognized as he observes the continued cessation of whatever is known by him. Many people think that by attaining Nibbana, we gain something. Bhante Nyanananda has a wonderful response to that. We don't gain anything, we don't lose anything, he says. And he was, by the way, an Arahant, although he was never recognized because uh, it doesn't matter. But he was an Arahant because he says something like, uh, along the lines of, although you, you don't gain anything, 
if we say that you lose something, he says, it is ignorance that you would be losing. And also the craving that there is not enough, that also will be lost. And then, uh, by the way, that's, that's a beautiful uh, statement uh, that comes from, I think, in his um, uh, I forgot the name, Contact, uh, the book that I recently narrated. Um, so um, it's, it's worth listening to or reading. Anyhow, here is where Venerable Sona puts it into a verse form. Um, his, he utters these, uh, these, uh, uh, these touching words. The secluded mind inclined to renunciation while being kind and with non-oppressive consideration of others. The heart undefiled inclined to the destruction of grabbing and craving. Upon seeing the arising of contact at any of the sense doors, tastes perfect freedom at last. For such a perfectly released bhikkhu who is now at peace, there is no more work to be done, nothing to improve upon. Just like a massive stone mountain does not tremble by the power of violent storms. Likewise, forms, tastes, sounds, odors, textures, or whatever mental objects that may be liked or dislikes, disliked can no longer affect him. That means the good, the bad, and the ugly really doesn't, don't make an impact on the mind. For the heart that is freed remains completely steady and unperturbed as it observes quietly their cessation. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Um, by the way, after... Uh, well, one of the, the things that uh, you, you, we don't see here, it's, it's in the Vinaya, I believe it's in the Mahavagga, um, is uh, Lord Buddha uh, sees how the, the Chankama path, where the, where the walking meditation was being done by Venabhasona, is covered with blood. And remember his, his tender, soft bottom of his feet? where fine hair used to grow, he was so driven that he would ceaselessly go back and forth doing chankama. So he was pushing himself too much, too far, because of his constitution, his, his upbringing did not have room, did not make enough room for that. So Lord Buddha told him to, to look for the middle path and eventually, we see how uh, after he becomes an arahant, Venerable Sona, while using the body, um, there's also in the 13-verse section of the Theragata, you have only his, uh, his is the only one I came across, um, where he has, um, Theragata are the poems of the arahants. You also have the Therigata for the arahant bhikkhunis. But in the Theragata, he mentions how, uh, um, it's, it's lovely if you get a chance to read it. Um, so um, he says how Lord Buddha came in and showed him 
how to find the easy balance, the sweet spot between two extremes. And, uh, and also after he became an Arahant, uh, oh, by the way, there is where he says about the fact that he used to practice uh, the body contemplation. So he had Sati Sampajanya of the Kaya Anupasana. So he was using the body, just like Venerable Anuruddha, using the body. Oftentimes we, we think that it's not that, uh, it's, it's not as intriguing, as, as powerful as, let's say, the breath meditation or the metta. Because we take the body for granted most of the time. But it is the doorway to the deathless, Lord Buddha says. It is the thing that takes us to the deathless, the tool, the body contemplation. And in, in, in the Theragata, in the Venerable Sona's section, uh, you see him also clearly stating that. Um, oddly enough, actually, after he became an Arahant, Lord Buddha wanted to make an, uh, an exception. Uh, he said, Sona, you can go ahead and wear uh, a single sheet or a single layered sandal, uh, sandals. And uh, it's so touching because Venerable Sona says, Bhante says, I have given up 30 cart loads of gold. And uh, I think eight royal elephants used to accompany me. I've given all those up. What are people going to say when they see me wearing sandals, when my fellow bhikkhus are not? He didn't find it fair for his spiritual companions in the holy life to be excluded from wearing sandals because, you know, roads are going to keep having sharp things, rocks, this and that, and bhikkhus did not have the permission then to, to wear any covering, foot covering, to protect themselves. And Lord Buddha, uh, so he, he protests, basically, to Lord Buddha. He says, no, Bhante, I won't wear it because my fellow companions are not wearing it. And Lord Buddha says, in that case, whoever wants to wear sandals can go ahead and wear sandals, single layered. And um, thanks to Venipasona, we, we have that option uh, to wear sandals. I thought that might be interesting to have. So I will stop here and, and uh, hopefully uh, this uh, sutta inspired you. And... Uh, and, and you might have questions you want to bring up, uh, questions about your practice or the Dhamma. Bante? Yes, Chitta. Thank you. Um, there was a couple of things mentioned within the sutta one about arousing energy and you've just said something a little while ago which was relevant to me as well about watching thoughts and um, what, what's been going on for me is, is i've started to to see or to sense like how dull my mind actually is mm. <laughs> um the perception of like light is one of the things that's really really helping me at the minute because I, I, just to give you a little bit of a background, I've been away for the last, um, like most of the last week with my wife and child, and it was relatively easy to arouse energy 
because we were having a nice time. We were in nature and it was, you know, so I, I thought I'd basically cracked it. And then when I tried to observe the body while doing this, I, I thought it was it was more difficult because the arousing of like this this light, this perception of light was happening like only in the mind. You know, and then when I started suffering, I was a bit like, well, how do I apply this as much? You know, like, how is like observing the body and also observing dukkha like benefited from arousing this energy? Because it seemed almost like I was trying to force this perception of light while trying to also remain in the body as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, now they're two different techniques, completely different. Uh, of course, they're they're marvelous techniques, and and they each it's like a medication, it's like medicine, that uh, like an ointment that is used for something. So you don't use an ointment that is supposed to be uh, prepared and used for a burn, uh, a burn victim, let's say, versus an ointment that can reduce, let's say, swelling or a headache or something like that. Uh, so I'll just use that uh, loosely as a metaphor. Uh, similarly, with the, um, the aloka or, or the light uh, practice, um, um, if the person is, as you said, dull or um, you get foggy or you get uh, the mind starts shrinking, so it gets contracted, as we have that contraction, uh, or tinhamida, the, the, the sloth and torpor, sluggishness and laziness can creep in. One of the best tools is to just use the light, light meditation. And uh, we did a sutta, excuse me, with, um, I think it was the, um, um, it escapes me now, but it was Venerable Mahamu um, Gallana, going over Iddhipada Sutta, yes, um, uh, Iddhipada Vibhanga Sutta, uh, where Venerable Mahamuggalana uh, was encouraging, was going through the different techniques where he says, um, the person sees the front as if, uh, sees the back as if it's the front, sees during the day as at night, sees at night as during the day so you're carrying light with you wherever you go in fact it is a casina practice in a sense even though you're not using a disc but you're using the light the perception of light in the mind and that is like a laser beam that shatters through that pierces through all kinds of cloudiness and fogginess in the mind like nothing else now what you're describing, on the other hand, is with the body, that is a different practice, of course. So one can easily put you into, it's, it's softer, it's, it's not as gross um, as the body. The body is gross, right? Gross, not as in like disgusting, but larger, more compact, has certain definitions, outlines, but the light doesn't have that. In fact, it shatters outlines, <laughs> any constrictions. So essentially what then happens in the mind uh, of the person who, who is trying to negotiate these two techniques is turmoil is created, mm -hmm. unnecessarily so. 
when our objective needs to be the opposite of creating turmoil. And um, something I had read, uh, again, Bantin Yananan does, he says, treat every turmoil as a represent, oh, well, it's not from him, it's, it's actually from Venerable Sariputta. Uh, he's, he's, he's bringing it into, uh, he's, he's introducing us to, to that statement where Venerable Sariputta says, treat every turmoil as a, uh, uh, an ally or a representative of Mara. Every turmoil that ever is experienced in your mind, instead of going into shadow boxing mode, instead of fighting with it, engaging with it, I'm going to get rid of you mentality. Instead of doing any of those things, because that will also fan the flames. The turmoil itself needs to be dispelled, needs to be immediately abandoned. Don't engage. Don't engage. It's like a person who wants to fall asleep. And they're having all these thoughts and they're fighting thoughts with thoughts. Well, what do you have? More thoughts. And the blood pressure rises and the body temperature rises and good luck two or three hours later you're still going at it so the best thing to do is pull away just ignore i used to tell parents uh, um, who have children uh, I, I would just use the example of having children i would say imagine you have two three children and one of them is extremely annoying yells and screams you don't kill the child simply because you know you don't murder the child you accept them but you stop giving them the attention you say okay you're going to sit there i'm not going to get rid of you i'm tired of trying to get rid of you you sit there i'm going to go ahead and mind my own business here business as usual treating those thoughts just like that because sometimes what happens is the mind, if it has become so used to having a turbulent mind, that internal state where there's friction, it will create new turmoil. Otherwise, why would you need to leave the light meditation and drop into the body and try to experience suffering, especially when you're out in nature, right? So there are these tendencies we have, which we need to... Again, it all comes down to Yoni Somana Sikara. Where is my attention? What am I observing? Am I seeking something out of this situation versus looking at the situation, observing the situation? And always checking to see, okay, is there turmoil? Oh, there is. Hello, representative of Mara. Hello. I'm not going to engage. Nope. That's not the path. Remember, that's also basically what I'm trying to uh, 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 insinuate or point the finger back to is samaditi, right view. Right view is not something that you get. It's like a, it's a, it's a title, a diploma, or you reach the point and that's it. Samaditi goes hand in hand with Yoni Somanasikara. You can't separate the two. If you have yoniso manasikara, right, wise, reflective attention, you have samaditi. 
even when you're practicing the keeping the precepts or your relationship with the meditation technique. So I hope that that was helpful. Yeah, as always, Bhante, it's perfect. Thank you. <laughs> so if there aren't any further questions, uh, we can go ahead and share some merits. May suffering ones be suffering free and the fear struck fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief and may all beings find health relief. May all beings share in these merits that we have thus acquired for the acquisition of all kinds of wholesome happiness. May beings inhabiting space and earth, devas and nagas of mighty power share in these merits of ours. May they long protect the Buddha's dispensation. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Be well. May your practice continue growing. You're not adding anything. We're not adding anything. We're trying to understand. We're trying to understand. And we're not doing it for anyone else. Just for the peace of heart, peace of mind. Yours. Clarity. And to reduce the turmoils in the mind, in the heart. So I will leave you with that and uh, see you next week. Be well. And may the triple gems blessings be upon you and your loved ones. Till next time. Sukhi Hoto.